It was about 592 BC. About a thousand years before this, just under a thousand years, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. But just five years before the events which we're reading about tonight, the Babylonians had invaded the land. Jerusalem was besieged, and the king, King Jehoiachin, surrendered. He, together with the entire upper strata of the population of Jerusalem, was sent into exile in Babylon. Much of the wealth of Judah, God's people, of the temple, were carried away. And another king was appointed by the Babylonians as a puppet meant to rule under them. But ten years after that, which is five years after the events that we're reading about today, 587 BC, that king would rebel against the Babylonians, and they would come and besiege the city again. And this time many people would die in the siege. The city would fall, many more would be slaughtered by the Babylonians, and the rest would be taken into exile. And this time, the temple, God's temple, would be destroyed. Ezekiel, son of Uzi, a priest, was among the first out of exile from 597 BC. That first, that relatively peaceful exile. There he was, in exile, halfway between these two events. He was probably about 25 years old when he was exiled from Babylon. And his ministry would continue from this time to the fall of Jerusalem and after. We think he's about 25 years old because in verse 1 it talks about the 30th year, which is now, it's five years later. And it's probably talking about his age. So what we read about just now is happening when he's 30. Now, many of you wouldn't believe me, but actually that's very young. I know that because I am young and I'm 24. So 30 must be very young. So he's about 30. And it's a time when, well, he would normally have been commissioned for temple ministry. But God gave him another kind of ministry. A ministry that he, well, we'll see, he actually didn't want. So there he was among the exiles by the Chabar Canal. Chabar Canal, if you uh, look at the next slide, you'll see, okay, all right, there's Mesopotamia there. You can see a little A there. That's very hard to see. You really carefully see an A. All right, can you zoom in a little bit more on the next slide? Zooming in, uh, okay, that's really beautiful. Okay. <laughs> um, the Chabar Canal is a bit north of Babylon proper. Next slide. Do you have the slide clicker sheet? Do you have the slide sheet? You don't have it? Okay, smack one thing. Oh, you got it. Okay, good, good. Okay, so, um, uh, where am I? Yes, he's 30 years old. He's at Shibaka now. Okay, there they are, uh, away from Jerusalem. The people back in Jerusalem thought these exiles here, they were the people that God rejected. Right, because they were in exile. We are back in Jerusalem. We still got the temple. God's still with us. But, interestingly, it's here in the exile. The heavens are open, 
Ezekiel sees visions of God, the word of God comes to him, and the hand of God is heavy upon him. Ezekiel begins to describe his encounter with God in verse 4 of chapter 1. It starts when he sees a stormy wind coming from the north, and there's an enormous cloud coming to him in the wind, but it's no ordinary cloud. The cloud is extremely bright, with fire flashing back and forth, radiance all around. At the middle of that, there's this gleaming, metallic-like brightness. And from the middle of that, he sees all little creatures. They look like somewhat human, but but they're not. Each has four faces, each has got four wings. Their legs are straight, their, their feet are like the roots of calves, they, they sparkle like highly polished bronze. They are magnificent creatures. And under each of their four wings, one on each side, they have hands, human hands. And each of them has a human face. From the right side, a lion's face, an ox's face on the left, and an eagle's face on the other side. Perhaps symbolizing royalty, strength, and compassion. They're forming a square. We know that because two of their four wings touch the wings of the other. While two of their wings are covering their bodies. And these four living creatures move in a perfectly synchronized way. They all move straight forward wherever the wind or the spirit goes without turning as they move because, oh, you've got four faces every side is probably who is forward, isn't it? These creatures are glowing with radiance. Like, well, Ezekiel describes them like burning coals of fire, like torches with bright, bright fire and lightning. And they're not stationary, they're constantly moving. Like flashes of light. And beside each creature on the ground is, is a wheel, bright, shining like the gleaming of a precious stone, with rims that sparkle with jewels that look like eyes all around. And the way they're constructed, it looks like somehow or other each wheel is inside the other. And so again, the living creatures are able to move in any direction. And wherever they go, the wheels go. The wheels seem to be animated by them. And so you've got this bright, fiery, hollow square with these four magnificent creatures in each of the corners. And it's wow. But if you think these little creatures look magnificent, then they look up. Over their heads, it's what looks like an expanse or, or a platform spread above their heads. And the platform itself is shining like awe-inspiring crystal. Remember, now each creature is stretching out two wings by the side, four wings over their body, and now this stack falls over. And then Ezekiel says he, he, he can hear a very, very loud noise. He describes it like the, the sound of many waters, a loud army. If he was alive today, it was like a jet engine or something like that. The noise is coming from the wings as they move, but, but when they stop moving, they let the wings out. And the sound ceases. And you hear another sound coming from further on. The sound of a voice. And this draws you to look up above the expanse of the platform. 
And then you realize that no matter how awesome those little creatures are, they're just there to hold up something that's far, far greater. They're just a transport. For what you see sitting on that platform is what Ezekiel calls the likeness of a throne. You see a throne, but he calls it the likeness of a throne because he wants to be careful not to misrepresent God. As if God is literally a big man sitting on a throne. This is a vision, this is picture, this is symbolism. And so he sees the likeness of a throne. And it's a magnificent throne. Brilliant blue, a lot like sapphire. Well, if you look at the footnotes in your ears, it's, it's that thing that, well, it's the most expensive thing at the time. And seated on this throne, verse 26, is a likeness with a human appearance. A likeness with a human appearance. Not surprising because human beings are made in his image. And this likeness from what appears to be a waist up was all like bright, gleaming metal and felt by fire all around. And from the waist down, it's just bright like fire with brightness all around. And brilliant lightness reflect, reflecting all the colors of the rainbow. And Ezekiel says, in the middle of verse 28, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The Lord there is, is Yahweh, isn't it? God of Israel. I don't say that this is Yahweh. God himself is bigger than man. It's only for the glory of God. It's the appearance of the likeness the glory of Yahweh, of the Lord, of God. What does Ezekiel learn from this? Ezekiel sees great and awesome God. And so he knows that in spite of the exile, in spite of all the bad things that have happened to Israel, in spite of the fact that the nation has been, been invaded, that they've been taken into exile, here they are, God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. In the New Testament book of Revelation, we see the same kind of thing. God's people are persecuted, they're tortured, they're killed. Churches are threatened by false teaching and false teachers, immorality, idolatry, and things look like they're out of control. And God gives the Apostle John a vision. And he sees the heavens open, and he goes up, all things to Arnuka, and he goes up, and what does he see? He sees living creatures, and he sees a throne, and he sees God is still seated on his throne. God is in control. And my brothers and sisters, no matter what is happening in your life, no matter what trials you're going through, no matter what persecutions you're facing, no matter what illness you have, no matter what danger you're in, in spite of opposition, in spite of death itself, we are going to do this. 
God is totally awesome and he is on his throne. He is on his throne. Things might look out of control, they might seem out of control, they might feel out of control, but they are not out of control. God is on his throne. Now remember, in Ezekiel's vision, God's throne is held up by these amazing, glorious creatures that can move in any direction. They can go anywhere. And this tells us that God is not just a God in Israel, is it? He doesn't just dwell in his temple in Jerusalem. There he is among the exiles of his people. Far, far away. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, is still on the throne, but his throne is not fixed in one place. It's a mobile throne. Not mobile phone, mobile throne. <laughs> You see, many people in those days thought the gods of the different nations were only part of their own nation. They thought each god had his own territory. And when Ezekiel saw these magnificent living creatures, he might have been tempted to think that they were the gods of the land that he was now in. But when he looked, and you could see them, and there's the transport there. They're the slaves, if you like, carrying the throne of the great king. And seated on the throne is Yahweh, the God of Israel. There's no room for that kind of thinking. And people today are also full of wrong thinking about God. They don't usually think the Christian God operates in a different place than the Muslim God or the Hindu God. Not quite as crass as that. But they still think all religions are more or less the same. Which one is best for you? All just depends on which one you're brought up in, which culture you're in. They all lead to the same place in the end. But in the Bible, we have none of that. In the Bible's perspective, there is only one God who is being heaven and the earth. And this is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has further revealed himself as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gods of the nations are idols. They are false gods, not different paths to the true God. And so here God himself cuts across whatever false thinking about idols, about gods, about territories people have. And he sets up his throne wherever he likes. There's also another kind of wrong thinking that's corrected by this vision. You see, there were people back in Jerusalem who thought Jerusalem would never fail, would never fall, because God's temple was there, and God would never let anything happen to his temple. But if God's throne is a mobile throne, then he isn't tied to his temple, is he? That's the fatal mistake that people in Jerusalem make. Because they put their trust not in God himself, but in the temple where he put his name. They trusted in the secondary religious thing that God had commanded, that God had ordained, that God had authorized, that God had blessed everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they failed to trust God himself, and therefore they failed. 
and people who call themselves Christians do exactly the same thing. We mustn't put our faith in the church, even though God made the church. God wants us to be in the church as a gathering of his people. But you can be a member of the church and not be saved. You have to trust in God. God wants you to read the Bible. It is his holy word. But you can read the Bible every day and not be saved. Having a Bible and even reading it won't save you. You have to trust in Jesus, the one that I will you to. God wants you to take communion. Jesus ordered the ordained the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. But eating bread and wine won't save you. You have to trust in the one whose body was broken for you and whose blood was shed for you. The bread and wine itself. The temple was the place where God dwelt with his people. But the temple would not save his people. They were meant to trust in him. But they didn't. For they could ignore him, the temple was sacred. But then Ezekiel saw that God's throne was a home after. And he could easily leave the temple and set up anyway. Even the banks of the Jabbar Canal. What Ezekiel saw in his vision, you remember, he described as the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God was big and powerful and impressive. The brothers and sisters, we have been even more blessed. We have seen the glory of God Himself. John chapter 1, verse 14, talking about Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly expresses the character of God. And at the cross we see his glory in the, in the clearest possible way. For at the cross we see God's character. We see his holiness, his, his intolerance of sin. We see his justice, his punishment of sin. Best of all, we see his love. Because we see God the Son, the Word made flesh, bearing our sin and our punishment for us. We have seen his glory. And in the resurrection, God powerfully brings his son to life again, shows his victory over sin and death. And so once again, in a different way, we have seen his glory. And we are far more privileged than Ezekiel. Ezekiel saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God. Has never really seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him. 
And so in that sense, we have seen God. And he looks exactly like Jesus. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. And when Ezekiel saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, verse 28, he says, I fell on my face. Because when you see the glory of God, or even the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God, the only response is to fall down in worship. That's the same for us. When we see Jesus, when he is publicly proclaimed as crucified, when we ponder our loving, giving, sacrificial, yet living Lord, all we can do is bow down and worship him. For we have seen his glory. Chapter 1 ends. Chapter 2 begins. And the loud wings have been silenced. And now we hear God's voice. Remember Ezekiel on a stage before God, where God commands him in verse 1 of chapter 2 Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And then God's spirit animates him, sets him on his feet. And then this great and awesome God tells him what this is all about. You know what it is? God is concerned about the behavior of his people. His tribe of nation, small tribe of the Middle East, isn't it amazing? It's God. And he's concerned about how these people behave. Because they're his people. And it's coming to Ezekiel, and he asks Ezekiel to pass a message to them. He says in verse 3, Say to them, Son of man, verse 3, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And so Yahweh, this great God, the God of Israel, the Lord, is sending Ezekiel to go and speak to these rebellious people. Do you think they're going to listen? Do you think they're going to respect the messenger? Well, God gives us a hint in verse 6. He says, Son of man, you don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their words. The briars and thorns are with you, and you sit on scorpions. Ouch. This doesn't sound like a very nice ministry assignment. God continues. Be not afraid of their words, because people can say terrible things. Be not dismayed by their looks. I'm not going to say anything the way they look at you anymore here. For they are a rebellious house. And you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. For they are a rebellious house. Just speak it. 
Doesn't matter if they listen. Doesn't matter if they refuse to listen. You just speak my words. Ezekiel is not responsible for the response of Israel. He is responsible to deliver the message. Just speak my words, God says. And even if Israel was stubborn, Ezekiel is still responsible to obey God in this matter. He mustn't be like that. And so God wants him to be like that. He says in verse 8, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. What does God want to do? Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Okay. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Well, as a kid, sometimes you play, open your mouth and close your eyes and see what the baby will be. Uh, no, I hope something nice. What's not going to do? Well, verse 9, he looks and there's a, there's a hand stretched out towards him. And in that hand, there's a rolled up scroll. And when the scroll is open, there's writing on the front and the back, it's full. There's no room for Ezekiel to add his own words. It's full. They're God's words. And they are sad words. Words of lamentation and mourning and wailing. And God tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll and speak to Israel. He's to digest the word of God and regurgitate it to his people. And they're not pleasant things to say. Ezekiel obeys. He eats the scroll and surprisingly, even though the words of mourning and lamentation and sadness, surprisingly, it's sweet in his mouth. Like honey. Because the word of God is good. The word of God is good, even when it is a word of judgment. And then God confirms to him, really, how Israel will respond when he preaches to them. Verse 2. Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words then. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you can't understand. Surely if I send you to such, they would listen to you. But house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. I'm sending them to you. You will give them the message, but they're not going to listen. Because they won't listen. Now for that kind of job, you need a certain amount of stubbornness, don't you? 
God's people are stubborn. God's prophet needs to be just as stubborn to deliver the message. So God says, verse 8, that he has made Ezekiel stubborn. Chapter 3, verse 8, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads, like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. I have made you stubborn, just like that. And so he says, don't be scared. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are rebellious. Don't be frightened by them. Don't be put off by them. They're rebellious against me. Just expect them to be like that. But their rebellion is no excuse for you not delivering the message. He said in verse 10, All my words I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, hear with your ears, and you go to the exiles, to your people, you speak to them, and you say to them, Thus says the Lord, whether they hear or refuse to hear. See what's God saying. It's really, really, really important, Ezekiel, that you deliver the message. How they responded out of your head, whether they listen, whether they refuse, whatever, your job, you listen to what I say, you tell them. That's what you're going to do. Just do it. And for instance, the duty of a prophet, isn't it? To faithfully and stubbornly pass on the word of God to his people. Doesn't matter if they listen, doesn't matter if they don't listen. Well, it does matter now, of course, but it's not the prophet's responsibility. His job is to preach the word faithfully, no matter what the response is. That's what Ezekiel was called to do. Now, if you look in the Bible, the whole line of prophets, prophecy, starts with, starts with Moses, isn't it? There's all the different prophets of all. Here's Ezekiel one of them. And where does it end up? Ends up with Jesus. The ultimate prophet, the prophet like Moses. And Jesus, his ministry is like that as well. Now, of course, Jesus is much more than a prophet, right? but one of the things he is is the prophet. And Jesus, like that, he says, coming up on the screen, he says, I don't do anything of my own authority. I do nothing of my own authority, but speak as the Father taught me. That's what Ezekiel was doing. And Jesus was perfectly faithful to him. Perfectly faithful to the Father. He experienced opposition as well. People didn't believe him. The Jewish authorities plotted his execution. But you remember, he set his face firmly to go to Jerusalem, where he knew he was going to die. He also had to be stubborn. His heart and stick to plan, even though it meant that. And not only Jesus, even you come out on the other side, the apostles, they faced persecution as well. Remember how God said to Israel, the house of Israel won't listen, uh, God said to Ezekiel, the house of Israel won't listen to you because they won't listen to me. Well, Jesus said something very similar to his disciples. He said, The servants are greater than his master, if they persecuted me, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Elsewhere he says this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and 
Father, all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, like, like Ezekiel. And of course, the apostles are special, but Jesus is not just talking about them, he's talking about all his people, including us. You have to proclaim his message faithfully. There will be people who oppose us. That'll be tough. But we have to proclaim the message. Are we people who will faithfully proclaim the gospel? Are we going to water it down and mess it up? Who will be faithful to proclaim God's word, both the popular bits and the unpopular bits? I mean, the results are out of our hands. How people respond, that is in God's hand and heart. But what we must do, we must always do, is proclaim God's word faithfully, whether it's publicly or it's privately, and whether it's in a formal kind of setting or it's at home, friends, whatever. And in this kind of context, success is faithfulness. That's what we've got to aim for, faithfulness. You and I cannot control how people will respond. But if we have faith on our heart, then that is success enough. Well, the vision is about to end. Ezekiel hears a loud voice like a giant earthquake. Again, as the glory of the Lord rises from that place, the great noise coming from the wings of the living creatures and their wheels, and you think the mobile throne is about to take off again, and what actually happens is the spirit or the wind picks up Ezekiel and takes him away. And to say that he is troubled is an understatement. He is terribly distressed and bitter and angry. He feels like he can't cope with this. He has seen this amazing vision of God. And God is giving him an assignment that he doesn't want. An assignment that's going to leave him ostracized and hated. An assignment full of those metaphorical thorns and prayers and sitting on scorpions. But what can he do? He can't fight this great big God. And he's going to get in trouble with all his people. Ezekiel doesn't like this. He's angry and sad. He goes back to the exiles of the Chabal Canal, a place called Tel Aviv, which, remember, is near Babylon, nowhere near Israel, therefore nowhere near modern-day Tel Aviv. Right? Don't get confused. He sits there for seven days, overwhelmed by all this. In shock, silence, desolation, distress. God, God is actually very kind. He gives him these seven days to, to digest all this. To digest all that he's seen, that he's heard, before he speaks to him again. He gets seven days. And actually, that's what you're getting as well. 
So if you want to know what happens after that, come back here in seven days. <laughs> We've seen Ezekiel. It's like Jesus in a sense. He's on that prophetic trajectory that's going to lead him. Like Ezekiel, Jesus will faithfully proclaim God's message. Like Ezekiel, this will have painful consequences in his own life. Like Ezekiel, he will be rejected and suffer. Like Ezekiel, he will have to be stubborn. Or like Ezekiel, he will say to a stubborn people. But friends, Jesus is so much greater than Ezekiel. Ezekiel was an unwilling prophet. Upset and angry that he'd been called to do this work. Jesus loved his father. He was delighted to obey him. He struggled as well. In the garden of Gethsemane, he struggled. But he wasn't angry and upset with the father for sending him to the cross. Because they would say to him, Not my will, but your will. Furthermore, Ezekiel was going to be given a message from God. Jesus is not only the messenger, he's also the messenger. He's the word that perfectly expresses God because he is God. And so finally, as we've already seen, Ezekiel sees God's glory. But Jesus his life and death and resurrection and ascension that is where we see God's glory in the clearest possible way and that is where we see his character and God calls you and he calls me to bow down and to worship him in Christ and to glorify him by faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ in spite of any opposition.